This peace is available only through the blood of the cross. This peace is only available through the blood of the cross of, Christ, uh, of Calvary, the blood that Jesus shed for us there on that day when, he, when his life was given for our sins. Now, there are a lot of arguments and a lot of misleadings about this subject and, and the ways to get to God and the ways to get to heaven. And, and all many people will tell you that all paths will eventually lead to, to the Father. We call that universalism uh, in, in our churches now where we're told that it uh, doesn't matter what our belief is, that at some point we all will find, our, we'll all find God. What may be truth for me may not be truth for Linda, and what may be truth for Linda may not be truth for me. And that's a lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Every major religion in the world, every major religion in the world except for Christianity says this. Every other major religion says that, that the way to God is through our works and through our struggle and through our toil and through our good deeds and through what we can do and through what we can manifest in our own lives. That the only way to God is, is us to create a way and to work ourselves there. Christianity says this, that God did the work for us when he went to the cross at Calvary. Now, that's good news this morning because I can tell you there was nothing in me that was good enough to get to God. There's nothing in me today that's good enough to get to God other than the fact that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior this morning and my sins have been forgiven. That's the only reason. Now, this is message is good news. This message is good news, but outside of the message being good, the messenger himself is good. The messenger himself is full of grace and he's full of truth. Now, we look at the Old Testament law, and the law was given with many symbols of terror. But the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ came from a heart of God that was agonizing over humanity and provided a way for us to get to God through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel embraces three things. The gospel embraces the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. The gospel tells me it can be summed up in two verses. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul said these words, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That sums up the gospel in a nutshell right there. Christ died for us, and the reason that he died for us was because it was the fulfillment of every prophecy and every scripture that had been written in the Old Testament. Everything that Moses had brought, everything that the prophets had brought, Jesus came and he took the law upon himself and lived a sinless life so that he could be, uh, that he could die for our sins and fulfill all those scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he was the fulfillment of every prophecy. Now here's what the gospel will always do. The gospel will always do these things. It will always exalt God. It will always magnify Christ. And it will always humble mankind. That is the gospel preaching. That is what it will do. And that is what it should be every time that we come together. And someone says that they're sharing the gospel 
It should exalt Christ, magnify, it should exalt God, magnify Christ, and humble mankind. If it's doing anything other than that, then it's not the preaching of the gospel. We look and we see Paul wrote these words to the church at Rome. He wanted so bad, if you read the, uh, the introductory verses there in chapter 1, he wanted so bad to be with those people and to preach among them, but yet when he came to them, he was a prisoner in chains. But he had written this, uh, these words to them to encourage them and to let them know that Christ was the fulfillment of everything that the law had laid down and that their lives could find freedom and peace with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had a great admiration of the gospel. He declares, he makes this statement when he says, I am not ashamed. He knew the words of Jesus in Mark 8, 38. When Jesus said this, he said, Forever, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul knew this word, and he knew that there was no way that he would ever find shame in declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would later, he would stand before governors and he would stand before kings and he would give the gospel of Jesus Christ to these governors and kings. And some of them would say to Paul, Paul, you, you, are, you have become a madman. You've become crazy in what you're saying. But yet in that, he continued to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about the salvation that could be found there and it was the only place where it could be found. Paul admired the gospel so much that he was not ashamed to believe it. One day, Paul, who was named Saul at this point in time in Acts chapter 9, we see him going down a road in Damascus. And the scriptures very vividly tell us that he was going angrily and that he was upset and that he had great hatred toward not only the Christians that he was going to persecute, but he hated Jesus Christ and the message that was being taught among these Christians. And so as he goes there and he is struck down by the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he is, he is struck down there by the presence of the Lord himself, and never since that day that he met the Lord and surrendered himself to him was he ever ashamed of the gospel. It was probably the only time in the whole account of Paul's life that we see him ask this question, why me? Why me, Lord? I am, you see where I'm going, you see where I'm headed, you know what my intent is. My intent is to stop the spreading of the news that you have brought. And it, his question there was, was probably, why me? Why would you choose me? But we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, uh, verse number 6, Jesus tells him this simply, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul immediately believed there. He, he immediately believed, but more importantly than that, he immediately obeys. He immediately gets up from where he is, and he goes into the city and finds Ananias, and he is told what it is that his task in life will be for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul admired the gospel and he was not ashamed to believe it. He was also not ashamed to confess it. Paul was among the most educated men of his time. He 
he was, he, he was the most intelligent person that you would probably ever sit in a room and have a conversation with. But Paul, after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is now consumed with knowing more and more about Jesus. He said this to, in 1 Corinthians 2 and, and verse 2, he said this, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He became consumed with knowing more about Jesus. Now think about this, this, this morning. What consumes us? What consumes our thoughts? What consumes our lives? What consumes the things that, that lead us and, and, and guide us in our lives? What are the things that we are so, con are we consumed with the things of this world, with the material possession of this world? Are we consumed with prestige or honor? Are we consumed with, with what can, we can get from this world? Are we consumed with social media? Are we consumed with, with all the other things that life has to offer? Do those things push out the time where we should be consumed with knowing more about Jesus? You see, I'm going to stand before Jesus someday. I'm going to stand before him, and, and I'm going to give an account for my life as a Christian. And I'm going to, I'm going to meet him face to face that day. And I'm going to have to give an explanation of what I did with my time. And, 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 and I don't know, I told you all a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in the office on a Sunday morning, and I got this message that I never got from Apple that told me how much time that I had spent on my phone the week before. And I can tell you that I was spending that much time, I can promise you that you're spending that much time, it was time that a lot of it could have been spent in prayer and in learning more about Jesus. See, if I were going to be given a test about a subject, and, and, that's, and that, it was important, it was something that was going to be life-changing for me, I'd study beforehand, wouldn't you? I'd study to know the subject that I was going into. I'm going someday to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, I tell you, I want to know as much about him as I possibly can. I want him to know that I was consumed in this life the way that Paul was, that nothing else, that, that the most important thing that I knew was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was not ashamed to confess his desire to know more about Jesus and the gospel. Paul was not ashamed to suffer. He was not ashamed to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not a surprise to Paul that he was going to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, God, Jesus told Ananias there in chapter 9 of Acts again, he told Ananias that he was going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It was no surprise to Paul that he was going to suffer for the cause of Christ. Paul wrote extensively about the spiritual warfare that he had been thrust into. You go to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 10, and read through uh, verse number 18. Paul talks specifically about the warfare that he was engaged in because of the cause of Christ. He was not surprised by the fact that he was going to be attacked and that he was going to suffer. There's four things that we need to know about the spiritual warfare that we are in this morning. If you believer in Jesus Christ, if you've been forgiven of your sins and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, 
you are a part of a spiritual warfare that is going on in this world we live in today. Let me give you four things that you need to know about this warfare we're in. First of all, the church and the world are deadly enemies. The church and the world are deadly enemies. The church that believes God's word and the church that stands on God's word and the church that interprets God's word and the church that puts this ahead of the world standard, we are a, 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 an enemy of the world and the world is an enemy to us. The world that has now twisted God's word and perverted God's word and has taken and and uh, the Bible says very clearly in Isaiah it says there will be a day when evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in that day. We see that playing out in our lives, in our world every day. We know in this spiritual warfare that we're in that the church and the world are deadly enemies. And we have to be aware of how the world views uh, how the world views things and how God's word should view we should view things through the lens of God's word and we can't do that with a closed Bible we can't do that with a Bible that's never open second in this spiritual warfare that we're in it appears that evil has the upper hand but Christ will ultimately be victorious it appears that evil has the upper hand, but Christ will ultimately be victorious. You see, the first time Jesus came to this earth, he came as a humble servant. The first time Jesus came to this earth, he came as a baby in a manger, lowly, in poverty, in, 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 in a shameful way. But the next time that Jesus comes to this earth, he's coming and he's going to put him. The next time that he puts his feet on this earth, he's coming as king of kings and lord of lords. And every evil will be subject to him, and he will do away with it at that point. And, and, and things will be in the order that God had originally planned for them. So someday we should know that Christ is going to be victorious. And the third thing that we should know is that God's hand, though unseen, is still working. Though we may not see it, God's hand is still working. Think about this. Those 11 brothers that day who took Joseph up out of that pit and sold him into slavery and thought they'd got rid of their problem and thought they'd got rid of that nagging headache that they had, little brother that was getting on our nerves and they sold him into slavery, little did they know that God's hand was on him and that someday he would be exalted to the being the second most important person in all of the world and that he would save those 11 brothers and their father from starving someday. God's hand was unseen, but God's hand was moving. Little did, those, little did those Roman subjects know that as they were building that 50,000 miles of road and they were, they were claiming that, that Rome was the greatest thing that had ever been in existence in all of mankind and that Caesar was God, little did they know that as they were building those 50,000 miles of road that someday God was going to overthrow them and all those roads were going to be used by those disciples and they were going to go and they were going to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's hand was unseen, but God's hand was moving. And I want to tell you this morning, you may not realize it, but God's hand is moving all over this earth. God's hand is moving in situations that it looks like there's going to be great conflagration. It looks like there's great turmoil in this world. God's hand is moving, and God's purpose is going to be played out. No matter what the world tries to do to stop it, God's hand is going to win. And I want to tell you this, most importantly, number four is this. 
Prayer is what moves the unseen hand of God. In this spiritual warfare, the thing that you are most called to do is pray. The thing that you are called to do more than any other thing is to pray. The situations that you see in this world and you call them evil and you, and you see the evil in this world and you see how the world is attacking our children, our grandchildren, and how they're trying to steal them through the things of this world, don't think it's hopeless. You need to pray. You have a great responsibility to pray. There may be nothing else that you can do at the moment, but I can tell you there's never a moment that you can't pray. And, and someday at the end of this life, we're going to look back and we're going to wonder, why didn't I pray more? Don't be that. Pray as much and as often as you possibly can. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian, and a prayerless church is a powerless church. And we need to pray. One missionary put it this way. He said, we were born for this battle. Every Christian is a soldier, a member of God's resistance in a spiritual warfare. Christians must oppose evil. The moment we lose sight of this, we become aimless in our actions and fuzzy in our focus. We forget why we were born and what we are equip equipped to do on the battlefield. Think about this statement. He says, we die without ever knowing why we lived. Most important, we never complete the mission we were sent to accomplish. How awful it would be to die without knowing why we live. We live to be an ambassador of this gospel that we preach about this morning. And Paul was never ashamed of the suffering that he went through for this gospel. And he went through more suffering than any of us can ever imagine. You ever known anybody that says, I'm not going back to church anymore because they hurt my feelings? You ever know anybody who quit coming to church because they didn't get their way? I'm going to tell you something. The Apostle Paul wasn't one of those people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, this is the Christian that Paul said he was. He said, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The next time somebody complains to you about church and what they don't like about church and how they, uh, they're upset about it, take them to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and tell them Paul was never ashamed of the suffering that he went through and he used it to become closer to God. Amen? Paul had a great admiration from the for the gospel, and he knew that if any man would live godly, he must suffer. Now, here's why Paul was not ashamed of it. He wasn't ashamed, for it is the power of God. It is the power of God. It is the continuation of the mighty word of him who created the heavens and the earth by the same word. I have enjoyed this past week 
of watching all the documentaries and all the things about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing and all of the things that went along with that. It's been, it's been neat to sit back and, and to watch those things. I was three years old when that happened, and I, I, I tried my hardest yesterday to remember just a moment of it, and I couldn't. And I was an exceptional three-year-old, and I couldn't remember it. You finally laughed. <laughs> but here's something. As I was watching and reading about the, the, the moon landing, I was, I was caught up in the Saturn V, the most powerful rocket engine that was ever built. It was 3,000 tons. It was more than a football field high. It had 12 million working parts and none of those 12 million working parts could fail. But 13 times between 1967 and 1973, the Saturn V engine took rockets, pushed rockets out in orbit or landing on the moon, and they were successful 100% of the time. That's powerful. That's great power. But I want to tell you this morning, it pales in comparison to the power of the resurrection on the morning when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It pales in comparison to know that God the Father had the power to raise God the Son from the dead from three days in a tomb and to bring him out of that tomb to be seen by 500 men and women uh, on the next 40 days and to know that he had the power then to ascend back into heaven without a Saturn V rocket booster. That's power. And Paul understood that power. Paul knew that it is the power of God for salvation. The power that created all of the universe is now directed through the gospel to the salvation of the lost. Now I want you to get that. The power that created everything we see is now the power of the gospel, is now the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is no other way to reach the lost except through the gospel. I want you to think about this. The saving of a soul is a greater miracle and more powerful than the creation story of Genesis. When your soul was saved, it was more wonderful and more powerful than the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1. It was a greater miracle than the creation story of Genesis chapter 1. A life that is transformed from dead to living is a greater miracle than any other miracle that we read in the Bible. It's a new birth. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly I say to you, you must be what? You must be born again. And those words have not changed today, 2,000 years later, no matter what the world says, no matter what the world tells us is a path to God. There's no other path to God except through Jesus Christ and the transformation of our life from dead to living through the power of the gospel. It's the power enough to meet the need of everyone who ever lived. And it is the Paul knew that it is the power of God unto, for salvation 
to everyone that believes. Everyone that believes. It's the power of salvation to pull everyone that believes into the family of God through a new birth. I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. Do you consider yourself to be a believer? Think about that for just a minute. Do you consider yourself to be a believer? Why? Why do you consider yourself to be a believer? There's a gospel call. There's a gospel call on each of our lives. Here are the facts concerning salvation. It's this simple. All people have sinned. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who's ever lived has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And because of that, the penalty for our sin is death. God's original intention in his creation was not for man to die. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, death became a reality for mankind. And Paul said it this way in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The wages of sin is death. I was born with a sinful nature. There was a point in my life where I became accountable for that sin. And that sin was leading me to death. Not only a physical death, but a spiritual death where I would be eternally separated from God the Father without hope. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for my sins. Romans 5 and verse 8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though I was a sinner, even though I was born with a sinful nature, even though I, I had that sin and I carried that weight of sin with me, even though I didn't deserve it, and even though it should have been me who went and died there on that cross, Jesus Christ went and died for me. But here's the, here's the facts. I can believe those three things. I can believe that I was born into sin. I can believe that I've sinned. I can believe that the penalty for my death is, it, it, sin is death. And I can even believe that Jesus came and died for my sins. But you know what? Even the demons believe and tremble if they're not forgiven. You see, there has to be a point where the Holy Spirit invites me to personally respond and where I repent of my sins and I trust Jesus through faith. Otherwise, what I believe doesn't matter. And there's an invitation to respond to Christ personally in repentance and through faith. The New Testament 
gives a vivid description of a personal response to an invitation from Christ himself. Jesus gave this great invitation in Matthew chapter 11. He said these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus was talking to a group of people who understood they could look around the fields in Judea and Palestine and they could see oxen who were burdened down with heavy yokes and made to be in a burdensome position of toil and work. And Jesus said, many of you are in that same situation. You carry heavy loads. You carry heavy burdens. But I'm here to tell you, if you will bring those heavy loads and those heavy burdens, I'll take them all from you, and I'll give you something that is much lighter. I'll give you forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And that invitation that he gave there is the greatest exchange that ever happens in this world. It is the exchange where I come with all my guilt and shame and sin, and I give all those things to Jesus, and Jesus in return gives me forgiveness and the righteousness of God in its place. That is the greatest exchange that will ever happen in this world. I don't care what kind of deal you get anywhere else. The greatest exchange that ever happens is when I gave my sin to God, and he gave me forgiveness in exchange. And here's what happens when we do that. There is a promise of forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus said it this way in that same book of John chapter 3. He said these words that we know so well. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What he's saying there is that no one who's ever been born should have to perish and be separated from God in eternity, but everyone who's ever been born has the opportunity to believe in him and have forgiveness of their sins and know eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? As you bow your heads, I want you to simply answer the question that I asked you before. Am I a believer? Would I consider myself to be a believer? See, what I've just done this morning is present you with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to tell you that God stands ready to exchange, take your sins and give you his forgiveness through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Here's what I want you to do in this moment. I want you to remove every other thing in your life. I want you to remove every title. Church member. Sunday school teacher. Reverend. Deacon. Choir member. 
I want you to remove every um, every religious symbol that you've ever been a part of, catechism, confirmation, baptism. I want you to ask yourself simply this question. Have I ever repented of my sins? Have I ever said, I am sorry for the sin in my life and I want to be forgiven of that sin? Because you see, all those titles and all those religious symbols won't mean anything on the day when you stand to meet God in judgment. All he's going to want, all that's going to be, he's going to look, he's going to want to know, were you forgiven of your sins? Did you follow Jesus? This morning, it would, it would be, it would be something like this. If you questioned yourself and you know that that's not you, be something like this it would be you reaching out to God and saying God I have sin in my life I have sin in my life and I have never confessed that sin I have never repented of that sin and I want to be forgiven God I, I'm sorry for that sin and I want to know what it is to be forgiven have eternal life it will be something as simple as, as saying those words to God this morning and then when you said those words to God it would be the most wonderful thing that you would ever do would be to thank God for his forgiveness and to thank God for your life eternal that you now have it would go something Father, forgive me, because I'm a sinner. I want to repent of these sins. I, I want to turn from these sins. And I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I want to know that I have life eternal and that I will be with Jesus forever and ever. And it would be as simple as saying, thank you, God, for saving my soul. This morning, maybe you have you have done that this morning. Maybe you've searched your heart and you know that you needed forgiveness. As we sing and as we celebrate the life and death and resurrection of Jesus through song this morning, it would be the first step in obedience would be to come and to let others know say I want to follow Jesus in baptism as Darren leads us in this time of invitation if you'd like to do that this morning if you have been forgiven of your sins and you know that you have life eternal with Jesus would you come this morning and share that with others